in his book, The God Particle, The Hunt for the Higgs Boson, Leon Letterman talks about a sculpture at what he claims is the world's most sophisticated scientific laboratory. It's this place called Fermilab. It's in Batavia, Illinois, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right for all my Illinois friends. And this sculpture is called Broken Symmetry, and it's found at one of the entrances, and it's three arches that curve upwards into the sky, and it and it appears as if they were designed to intersect at, at a point 50 feet above the ground, but they don't make it, at least not cleanly. The arms meet but almost haphazardly. Lederman says it has an oops feel to it, as if three separate contractors were instructed to each build a side, but they never actually talked to one another and got on the same page to figure out where this thing is so you know supposed to meet. So it looks asymmetrical. It looks all in disarray. The pieces don't line up. It's random. It's unfinished. It's haphazard. And from every angle, it just looks bad. It looks bad except from one place, one perspective. And it's directly underneath it. And Lederman says that if you were to go out into the middle of this sculpture and on the lawn and you were to lay on your back and look straight up from that one perspective and only from that one perspective, the brokenness is dissipated, disappears, and it's perfectly aligned. See, the purpose of that sculpture was to remind all those who entered that they were to search for hidden clues of symmetry, even though it appears like the universe is random and it's without order. We talk a lot about chaos on The Restorationist. It's, it's a subject that comes up quite a bit. It really does, because I believe that dealing with the messiness of life is the very thing that creates the most stress for the most people. But I've also discovered that there is a perspective where life can make sense and the asymmetrical nature of the human existence disappears and this beautiful symmetry can be discovered where life is no longer as haphazard and as random and it just shines through the apparent brokenness of our lives. And that place is a perspective that comes from God when we view our life through the lens of His plan, His will, and His story. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I just want to give a big shout out to my homies in Oshawa from Crosspoint Church, Oshawa, Ontario. I get a chance to meet some of you guys this past weekend and get to hear your testimonies about how you've just started going to church, God's been working in your life, and how this podcast has been part of your journey towards Jesus. Thank you for telling me your story. It was so encouraging and it made me want to work even harder. You keep the faith. You keep serving God. Keep serving your incredible pastor, Pastor Jim Church. And God's going to do great, great things with your life. To the rest of us here, I'm really excited about the next couple of interviews that have already been recorded. They're going to be released very, very soon. 
taking us into the new year. But now let's talk about today. Today is part two of origin stories. And we have been talking about how people want to know where they come from, that having an origin story, knowing your origin story is is so very important, that if somehow we can untangle our story, our origin story, we can discover our purpose in life and we can answer life's most perplexing, most important questions like, who am I? Where can I go? What does my future look like? And, and we said in the first episode, Origin Stories Part 1, that answers to these questions, they form your worldview. The way that you look at and interpret your external world, that your worldview is the filter reality flows through as it enters into your soul or enters into your consciousness. And this worldview determines your place in reality and your perceived connection to the world around you, to God and to other, other humans. But this origin story goes so much deeper than your family tree. And we established this in the first episode that that it has cosmic roots. That in order to grasp a correct view of our hearts and our lives and our direction and our identity, we have to get a grasp of the cosmic story of the universe and the whole human race. Now, this may seem like a whole lot of mumbo jumbo and the cosmic story thing may seem impractical in comparison to how much your family story or your childhood has a direct and immediate impact on you. But but honestly, how you see the universe and, and human life more broadly will deeply, deeply affect your interpretation of your life and your experience. In other words, let me let me put it this way. Your interpretation of your micro story will be informed by your perspective of the universe's macro story. Now, I suppose the argument can be made that the opposite is true, but my perspective has been that if you get the macro story right, that, uh, that if you see yourself within context of the broader story of the universe and of the human race and of God the interpretation of the micro components of your life story will follow and will be in alignment with God. So to help us answer the cosmic end of our origin story, we've been looking at the Bible, specifically chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. And in these episodes, we've been been doing something really neat. We haven't been talking about how Genesis answers Darwin or how Genesis uh, defeats evolution or anything like that. We've, We've been trying to look at the the whole Genesis narrative through the lens uh, that the children of Israel would have looked at the story uh, with, with when they, when they received it in Mount Sinai, when Moses wrote it. And we are comparing and contrasting Genesis with the pagan stories that were the contemporaries of Israel and of Genesis at the time that the story was written. And when we do that, and when we compare and contrast the pagan creation epics with the book of Genesis, we uncover some deep, deep worldview-shaping truths that are still speaking into our life and our souls today. And so every episode we've been looking at a different story, and so the pagan story that we are looking at today is the Atrazis epic, the uh, Atrazis epic. Now, this story is wild, or as my friends would say, it, it's bananas, like it's it's crazy. That's a shout out to Calvin and Akil. Um, it's bananas. They and in this story, here here's the elements of the story. In this story, there were three gods, and these three gods divided up the universe. Now, in the Atrasis epic, 
there was this pre-existent universe and to some extent, as we'll discover, a pre-existent earth. There was matter and earth that was already there to some extent. And these three gods were Anu, the god of heaven, Anil, the god of the earth, and Enki, the god of water. Now, Enil is in charge as the god of earth. He's in charge of all of these little gods. We don't necessarily know where they come from, but we know that there's like these junior demigods kicking around, and they have been tasked with digging the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. But as true with many labor disputes in modern times, the conditions of this working environment were not ideal at all. They were horrible. And so these these little gods unionize and they refuse to work. They go on strike. They get so mad. They attempt a mutiny that Anil is alarmed. He's, he's completely taken back at these little unnamed demigods that are now threatening to go on strike and they're now going to attack the three bigger gods and they're going to defeat them. And they're like, no, we're not digging your rivers no more. So Anil, he threatens to quit. In this story, it says, he starts crying. He's just weeping. And he threatens to quit being a god. It's crazy as that sounds. He's like, I'm not going to be a god no more. And then he move, He says, I'm going to move to heaven, and I'm going to live with Anu, and I'm going to retire. I'm going to stop being the god of the earth. I'm going to go to heaven with Anu, and I'm just going to chill because I cannot do this anymore. And this is where Enki, the god of the water, steps in and says, I got this. I can fix this. I can save this. And so he's like, I'm going to be the arbitrator of the labor dispute. Now, his his solution is that they make this non-divine entity called humanity to be slaves, to do the work that the gods did not want to do and thus free them from their toil. But here's the catch, and this is where the Godfather music should kick in. They got to kill one of their own and drain his blood to into the clay to make humans. So essentially, essentially Yankee steps in and says, I got a solution to fix your problems, but it comes at a price. Look, okay, that's enough. I can't, I can't do that anymore. I already know that I'm going to get made fun of for doing the Godfather voice. But this is super hardcore. It's mob boss level savagery. But these guys, these little, these junior gods, they hate digging ditches so much that they agree to this demand. So they take Waila, the purported union boss, and they kill him. Enki like rows him out to the middle of the lake and like boom, whacked, he's done. And they drain his blood like a slaughtered pig and then they dismember him. They dismember him. And from the blood and bits of his body, they make humanity who are now functioning as slaves to the gods. And and this is really important. Slaves to the gods and slaves to the kings who are the emissaries, the incarnations of the gods. And that's it. That's the whole story. The end. So what are the worldview implications of this pagan story? Well, number one, people are random. Beyond the fact that the gods aren't sovereign and they cry and they threaten to quit and they're a, bit of, they're a bunch of babies, people are random. That's the big takeaways. People are slaves. Their purpose is to be the slaves 
of the gods and of the kings that are the representatives of the gods. This is a really messed up story. Now, I want you to contrast this with Genesis. Let's look at how much different or how, how different Genesis is from the Artrasis epic. It says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then in chapter 2 it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Look at this contrast. Doesn't this feel so much different than the Artrasis epic? Doesn't this have a whole like different vibe and different function to it? Number one, God's not toiling. He's not sweating. He's just just saying, this is what I'm going to do. And then he goes out and does it. But when we get to humanity, God doesn't just speak them into existence, but he gets down into the mud. And the story slows down in chapter two as he painstakingly constructs us with his own hands and then breathes into our nostrils something from himself. It's his own spirit. And man becomes this living being, this living soul with a connection to God. See, in Genesis, what made people people is that the creator breathed his own breath into their clay and dust forms, and it's his breath. It's God's spirit that's breathed into those those human bodies that makes them come alive. It's what makes them people. It's what makes them human. So here are the big points. Here are the big points from Genesis we can pull it right away. Number one, people are made in the image of God. People are made in the image of God. That every human being that is born, like the first human beings, they they bear within them. Some part of them is reflecting the creator. They bear his image. And it's... Number, number two, it's his spirit that makes us truly different from other animals. It's this spiritual connection, this connection to eternity that makes all human beings different from all of the other elements of creation. And number three, humanity was created to be co-participants with God in creation. We are called to fill the earth. We're called to govern the earth. We're called to rule and reign as stewards over creation. And and later on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, it says, God, The Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. So if you take a look at Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, this is not slave work. What God has human beings do is not slave work, but empowered, delegated authority. He said, I want you to have dominion. I've created this whole world for you. All of creation has been made for you. 
and now I'm going to give you some of my power. He brings all the animals to Adam, and he's like, what do you want to call them? And Adam would pick their names, and that would be their names. God's like, okay, whatever you say, their name is, I agree with you because I've given you this delegated authority. They have been given the power and the ability to complete the work of creation that God started. Now imagine with me how different the worldview implications are of Genesis for this original audience of Israel in comparison to the implications of the Artrasis epic. See, like, like we said already, the surrounding cultures, their creation stories, the gods were not powerful, they got, they got tired, they cried. But more importantly, human beings were random specks of dirt. They were, they, were dis, they were a collection of cells that were made up of the discarded, dismembered body parts of rebellious little demigods. They were afterthoughts. And they're designed and their whole purpose was to be slaves, to do the dirty work, the dirty jobs that no one else wanted to do. But in Genesis, God is loving. He gives them the gift of the Garden of Eden, and he says, all this I give to you. You are the reason why I made this whole universe. They're not slaves. They're sons and they're daughters of God. Now, now think about the impact this story had on Israel. When they were spiritually minded, of course, not, they, they weren't always like us. Sometimes they strayed, but, but think about when Israel was completely in alignment with God. They were fierce. They were proud. They were bold in their identity as children of God. This is what made Israel so proud despite being desert wanderers. All the other nations had walled cities, and they were intense. But this is, this is what made Joshua and Caleb stand at the threshold of their tents looking at the walls of Jericho so thick that two chariots could race side by side and saying, we are well able to go up and take this land. This is what empowered a shepherd boy without a stitch of armor to meet a giant warrior in a valley with a sling. This is what drove three teenage boys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand before an unbelieving king and say, we're not going to bow to you or your dumb statue. It was this understanding that came from their origin story, that they've been made in the image of God. And their God was strong, and he loved them. And whatever he said was true. And that's all they needed. That's all they needed to go on. They, all they needed was a word from God. And this relationship they had with God that was bound in covenant and love, that was enough. I mean, everybody else can talk big, but they knew who they were because of their understanding of the creation story. Now, here's what's so cool. As what God said to Israel, God says about you too. So here's the worldview implications of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for us. Number one, you're not an accident. Genesis declares that God made the world on purpose and he made it for people. And people are the centerpiece of his creation. This means we're not random hunks of carbon just floating around in a universe that will one day die out. An earth that will one day no longer be inhabitable because the sun will burn away, as you know the doomsday scientists will say. You're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. You've been made unique by God. And God cares for you. 
God genuinely cares for you. Number two, your life has purpose and it has mission. And so you don't have to be afraid of the culture. You don't have to be afraid of the world. You don't have to be afraid of the devil or anything because God made you. He's chosen you. And he's asked you to do a job. He's given you purpose and he's given you mission. And your God is strong and he knows the end from the beginning. And if he asked you to do something and he gave you that purpose, it's because he knows that as long as you stay connected to him, nothing will be able to stop you from fulfilling the purpose that he has laid out in your life. That's what we get from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But I've been talking about Genesis 3 for the past episode and for some of this one, but we actually haven't got into Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the utopia is destroyed. The story goes sour. I don't need to rehash all the elements of it, but when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he put a tree in the middle, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he said, don't eat of that tree. From the day you eat thereof, you're going to surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? They eat of the tree. They blow it. They mess up. And now there are consequences. There's death, there's pain and oppression for Eve. She's going to have pain and childbirth and she's going to be oppressed by, uh, by men. That's part of this curse for all women. There's death upon Adam and Eve and there is pain and oppression for Eve. And for Adam, it's this soul-sucking defeat and struggle. Adam is wired to create. Adam is wired to be productive. He's wired to get stuff done. But now when he tries, thorns and thistles are going to choke out his efforts. Stuff's not going to work. In short, the chaos is back. The chaos is back. The chaos quelled in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and verse 3. The chaos that God quells at the very beginning, has been reintroduced in a new way by the sin and the disobedience and the rebellion of the human race. But because God is good, because he is strong, in the story, there's hope. Even though chaos has been brought back in by the stupidity of human action, it seems like God has been prepared for this chaos all along. Because there's mercy in the middle of the judgment that God brings. See, Adam and Eve, they were supposed to die. What did, what did God say? That the day you eat thereof, you're going to surely die, right? And, and I know what, what I have said and what others have said for years. It's like, well, what he meant was die spiritually. But I don't see a footnote in Genesis that says, P.S., God only meant spiritually. Because it just says they'll die. And, and die means die. It means you're going to die. <laughs> but they didn't. They were supposed to, but they didn't. The first death in paradise, as judgment was being handed out that day, was not the death of Adam or Eve. It was the death of an innocent bystander, the death of an animal. Because Genesis 3 verse 21 says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Why did God take skins to cover Adam and Eve? Because we know that they made aprons out of fig leaves for them. 
for themselves. And they discovered after they had sinned that they were naked, they made their own clothes. They created their own clothes. Were they cold? Did they need a new fur coat? No, not at all. When we look back at the story from the lens of the New Testament, we can see that God was delaying his judgment on humanity that day by substituting an animal in place for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were supposed to die that day, but instead an animal died in their place. In order to satisfy God's word in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. So that when God looked at them and he looked at those skins, he saw that death had already come and judgment had already been passed, albeit not on them, but on an innocent third party. See, for us, the deeper meaning is what these skins foreshadow. Though we're not told what animal these skins come from, we don't know if they came from a lamb, we know that in the future, God would carry out this word in its entirety on another lamb. The lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would be the man who would receive the full impact of God's judgment to cover the nakedness and the shame of sin and to be an answer once and for all for the chaos that has been reintroduced into creation because of rebellion. And and this is not all. Not only did God delay and defer judgment, which we know is Jesus, but he spoke of the triumph of Jesus in the middle of the judgment that he was giving Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, at this point of the story, God was straight up smack-talking the devil. God was aggressively confronting the serpent. And he says that there's going to come hostility. There's going to come hostility between you, Satan, and someone who will be born of the woman, a seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is called a he. And he says to the devil, you're going to bruise his heel, which means temporary injury. But he said that seed of the woman is going to bruise your head. Now, bruising the head is a figure of speech for an ancient practice back in the Bible days. That when a king would conquer another kingdom, he would haul out the king of that conquered kingdom and he would throw him down on the ground and put his head on a rock. And then he would put his foot on top of that king's head. And then, and this is brutal, he would stomp on that defeated king's head. He would stomp and stomp and stomp until that king had died. Till he had been beaten to death, crushed, his skull cracked, his brain hemorrhaging from the blows of the full weight of that conquering king. God was saying, the woman is going to have a male child and you're going to give him a temporary injury. But when he's done with you, he will take you to this place of defeat and shame and he will destroy you completely. Destroy sin, destroy chaos, destroy rebellion. Now this seed of the woman is clearly Jesus who came 4,000 years or so after these words and he dies on the cross. He was bruised. But on the third day he rose, he defeated Satan and his seed sin. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself shared in the same that through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil. See, Israel read this story from the perspective that God had called 
their people to be a separate nation who would bring about this redeemer, this seed promised of the woman, that they they were God's holy and special people, that they were going to bring about the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy, that they had been placed on the planet to be God's people. And through them, he would redeem people from sin and Satan would finally be destroyed. They were the ones that God had chosen. Now, when you and I read this story, we read it on the other side of Calvary, that those on Mount Sinai heard it. We read it on the side of Jesus has already come, and he's already destroyed the devil. And we have been set free by Jesus, and Jesus has come for us. And he has destroyed sin. He's destroyed the power of the devil. For all those that put their faith in Jesus and all who are born of the water and the Spirit, the enemy has been defeated for them. And so now our purpose, remember I said we we're made with purpose. Our purpose is to tell as many people as possible that the solution to evil and sin has been found, and it's Jesus. And we are to demonstrate the power of Jesus on earth. We are to have and to take dominion on earth so that people would see that the Redeemer is here and he's alive and he can set them free like he has set us free. We, we understand and we believe that we are the ones God has chosen and that we've been placed here on purpose to assist God's mission to redeem people. This is what First Peter said, he, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you to darkness and to his marvelous light. See, the Christian cosmic story admits that God's perfect world and perfect design has been marred and rejected by sin, that chaos is back. But it also gives us tremendous hope because as much as God was intimately involved in making creation, he's just as involved in redeeming creation. When you take a look at the time dedicated to how much God spent on making people, the amount of time that he also spends promising people that despite their rebellion, that he is going to save them. We see that God is just as involved in pulling us back out of our rebellion as he was in making people perfect and whole and sinless in the first place. Now, when we understand life from this perspective, it doesn't mean that everything is always going to be perfect and that we'll never face trouble. But when we do face trouble, we face it from the understanding that the chaos is still being managed by God. And from his perspective, it's not chaos, but there is perfect symmetry in it. And it all makes sense to him. The scripture says that Jesus Christ, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. That means from the very foundation of creation, God knew that we were going to mess up. God knew that we were going to fail, but he already had a solution to our rebellion. And our life may look chaotic. It may look like sin and trouble and the devil is all tearing us up. But if we can get his view and we can see things through the lens of his story, we're not in chaos. There is symmetry in the brokenness. No matter how bad your family story is, no matter how messed up your immediate origin story may be or what things 
may have happened or been done to you, there is a cosmic story that you are tied to as a human being. A story that's been written by God. See, there's some strong cases to be made for how the first three chapters of Genesis answers atheistic Darwinism. Well, to be honest, maybe I'm only talking for me. For most of us, we're not sitting around worrying about those questions. We're not sitting around wondering why something came out of nothing. We're like Israel when they first received it. We're in a desert place. We're in unfamiliar territory. And we're trying to make sense of our life and its meaning and its purpose. And what our origin story tells us is that we're not accidents. Our life is not a hiccup. It's not an afterthought. That we do actually have purpose. And even when we fail, even when we drop the ball, God doesn't abandon us. He creates symmetry out of our brokenness, but he works for our redemption. And he is faithful and just to give us forgiveness and mercy and rework our mess into fresh purpose again. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm truly honored you've given me this kind of time in your life. All I'd ask is that if you're not subscribed, please hit the subscribe button and share this with your friends. Tell your tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell people in your life that you go to church with about this. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm praying for you, and I mean that honestly and sincerely. Before every episode, I pray that God would use it somehow for his glory to help your life. I pray for those that listen on a weekly basis. I'm praying that God will help you, that God will bless you, and that whatever God wants to accomplish in your life, that his purpose would be fulfilled. And as always, have a great day.